All right, welcome, welcome. Wow, you guys are just as chatty as first service. Simmer, simmer, simmer. I know we're all excited. It's Sunday. We're here together. We're worshiping the Lord together. We're going to get into his word together. If I don't know you, my name is Marley. I, there's a lot of new faces since I last did this. So, hi, I'm Marley. Um, I'm on staff here at Sierra Bible, and we are just so happy that you're here with us this morning. If you are new, if you're a first-time guest, or if you're just visiting and you want some more information about who we are, what we do, ways you can get plugged in, all that information is in the seat pocket in front of you. And get connected with us. We'd love to meet you. We'd love to get to know you. And we'd love to help you get plugged in any way possible. Um, I have just a couple announcements for you. I lost my page. I'll find it. I get so nervous up here. I can sing in front of you guys, but I can't talk in front of you guys. <laughs> um, it is October, and it is Pastor Appreciation Month. Um, we have some great pastors here, don't we? There's some awesome guys. <laughs> yeah, um, and we just want them to know that they're appreciated. So if you see one of them, grab them, give them a hug, tell them you love them, tell them you appreciate them. Um, there's also some boxes on the info booth if you'd love to bless them with a little more than a hug. Um, and then coming up on November 5th, we have our staff and leadership meet and greet. If you want to just get to know who we are, come on out, uh, meet all the staff, meet our leadership team, meet those pastors in a little bit of a smaller setting. That's going to be on November 5th at 1230 next door in Ray Hall. And if you wouldn't mind just registering for that on the app, we're going to get lunch for you guys. So we just need to know how many people we're feeding. So you can sign up for that. And then we also have the next night is our last ladies' night of the year. Um, we are going to be doing the Christmas luncheon in December like normal, but that'll be the last ladies' night of this year. And again, that one's going to be free, but still register in the app so we know, <coughs> excuse me, how many people are coming to that. And then also in November, we have our turkey shoot. No worries. We're not shooting real turkeys, so if you were worried about that, don't, because that's not what we're doing. That is a $15 entry fee just to get supplies and everything for that. And if you have any more questions, John Howard is right here, but you can also give him a call and you can connect with him about that. Again, for that, please sign up on our app so we know who's gonna be there. And then, um, I had one more. McDiro, you're gonna come on up. No, I'm just kidding, I did that to him before. But this coming week, um, we are not going to be having prayer and worship on Thursday. That's just going to be postponed one week. And with that, we'll have Pastor Brad Beers come on up. I said to the first service, I don't know why it is that you clap while I walk up or any of us walk up, but we appreciate it. It just kind of fills the awkwardness. Yeah. Thanks. Aw, thanks, guys. Hey, uh, you're going to need a Bible. It, Bible is our middle name. So if you forgot yours or don't have one or you just are in the market for a new one, stick your hand up and one of our people will put a Bible in it. And if you don't own a Bible and you like that one, keep it. We bought it for you because we want you to read the Bible because it is a fantastic thing for you. Uh, that being said, once you all get armed with your Bible, go to Ephesians chapter 6. I get to continue our Ephesians series, and we will be... Um, Brian, Will wants one. Can you give that one to Will, or should I give... 
him mine. You got to give me one if I give mine to Wilda. You give it to her. Oh, and then Janice wants one too. I love this. We need, is that like the last, last Bible? I love running out of Bibles at church. That's great. There's, uh, there's lost and found Bibles in, in the corner over there. If you lost your Bible and you're wondering where it is, it's over there. How have your devotions been? <laughs> anyway, uh, <laughs> that'll hopefully be the last time I make you feel judged today. Uh, <laughs> other than that, Ephesians chapter 6 is where we are going to be. And I'm going to warn you ahead of time. I have a dump truck's worth of information to dump on you this morning. Splash zone? Really? All right. <laughs> I have so much information I'm going to share with you just because Jesse provided me a great challenge. He, he talked about two groups of people over the span of three weeks and then say, hey, in one week, will you cover four groups of people? And I said, challenge accepted. But what that means is that if you sense that I'm speaking quickly, I am. I will be speaking quickly. And I, I might not necessarily like spend a ton of time unpacking an idea. And there might be stuff here that the Holy Spirit needs to use with you this week. So be it. So let it be written. So let it be done. Okay? That being said, I'm going to stop babbling because we got, we got scripture to get to. Let's, I'm going to invite you to stand. And the reason why we're standing, again, is to use our bodies to remind ourselves how significant these words are that we are about to read. And before we even read together, I want you to look down at the page of the open Bible in front of you and using your mouth, remind yourself by saying, these are God's words. Say it out loud. These are God's words. Good. This is what God has to say to you, at least in the English Standard Version. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Holy Spirit, this time is useless if you do not speak. I have asked for your help in preparation for a message that you want to speak to your people, and it is not lost on me that in this moment, I still need you to keep speaking. So tell your people what it is that you want them to hear through me. Make their hearts open that they would receive it, that we would be a people that brings you such honor and glory that you cannot help but continuously smile because your spirit has done such a work in our hearts. We praise you for what you will accomplish. Amen. You can be seated. 
So whenever you study a passage, you want to remember what comes before it, right? So Paul has been addressing various subgroups within the life of the church body. And remember that there has been a guiding principle that has been the overarching principle for all the groups he's going to address. That guiding principle was in chapter 5, verse 21. Somebody, no matter what version you have in front of you, read it out loud. 521. Just read it out loud. Thank you. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And we've unpacked that over weeks because that is a huge phrase that has a bunch of dense concepts in it. But that is the overarching phrase that you are going to see continue to play out after 522 through 33, where we talked about wives and husbands and how they play that principle out. Now we're going to talk about four more groups in chapter 6. And in doing so, as we talk about the four groups, and I am going to do some work to unpack each of the groups and the unique information that is shared by Paul with them, but hopefully one of the things that you will pick up, like I did, is a consistent theme that weaves its way through all four groups. We'll get to that in a moment. First, let's read chapter 6, verses 1 through 3 again, where Paul says, children obey or listen to, more on that in a moment, to your parents in the Lord, for this is right, or this is righteous. Honor your father and your mother, for this is the first commandment with a promise, in order that it might go well with you, and you might have a long time in the land. The first word in most English Bibles of verse 1 is what? Children. Now, if you are anything like me and you see that word children, what you probably think of is minors, not the digging kind, the little kind, the juveniles, the kiddos. That's what you have a tendency to think. And this, this word, tekna, does actually have that as part of its range of meaning. The problem is that if you assume that this word just means minors or juveniles, you're actually going to miss the bigger point that Paul is going to try to make. Because this word has a wide range that denotes offspring and students and sometimes even just people who are loved by the author. This is not just instructions for kids. And I'm going to prove this to you in a moment. But before we do that, let's look first at what the directive is. It is a verb here, hupakoete. And again, I like to use the Greek terms just because I feel like it paints with a colored palette what could be kind of the black and white version of the English text. So I'll throw out some Greek words and tell you kind of the range of them. This instruction from Paul, hupakoete, means to listen under, to place yourself under the authority of, or to obey, or even actually came from a direct use of when someone knocks at your door, you responding to their knock and going to answer the door. This, this word that is told to the children or the offspring is told that we are going to do this in the Lord for that is what is right. And Paul supports this command from one of, look at verse 2, what, where does Paul get the support from his direction? Where does this come from, verse 2? The Ten Commandments. Somebody say it louder for the kids in the back. Killed it. Good job. The Ten Commandments. Now, if you want to reference it later, you can look up this verse specifically in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, where it says what Paul directly quotes. Honor your father and mother. Do you know how the verse doesn't start in Exodus? It doesn't start with the word children. 
Have you ever thought about that before? That in the Ten Commandments, when you hear the words, honor your father and mother, or when you see this verse from Paul, you think that this might be a command just for the kiddos. Newsflash, it's not. The Israelites were never told that only the kids had to honor their father and mother. They were told to honor their father and mother. Not only is this the right thing to do, not only is it righteous according to verse 1, but like many things in the economy of the kingdom of God, this is one of these mutually beneficial things. It is good both for the parent and for the child. Here's why. We are all, every single one of us in this room, if you exist, which you do, I have a philosophy degree, I can say that, you do exist, and as such, you are all psychological products of your parents in some way, shape, or form. My parents are actually visiting us this morning, and so if you want to know the origin of my oddities, you need look no further. They are here today. They will not acknowledge my presence at this point, but (laughs) we are all psychological products of our parents in some way, and human growth entails the necessity of coming to grips with our own family story and arriving at a place where we can be grateful for who we became because of our parents. I'm going to read you a, a bit of an excerpt of a book of a guy that probably is one of the most influential individuals in my life, though I spoke with him very little. His writings have meant a whole lot to me, and the staff knows what it's going to come because every time I talk to the staff and I go, you know who Dallas Willard says, what Dallas Willard says, what Dallas Willard says, they always know that it's going to be Dallas Willard. Well, sure enough, it's going to be Dallas Willard. It is Dallas Willard, and this is what he says on this matter. He was the first one to teach me this idea. At the heart of our own identity lies our family, and our parents in particular. We cannot be thankful for who we are unless we can be thankful for them. Not certainly for all the things that they have done, for some of them may have been quite horrible. But in many cases, we must come to have pity on them before we can be thankful for them. Nevertheless, the fifth of the Ten Commandments says, Honor your father and your mother, and then adds, That you may enjoy a long life in the land that the Lord your God gives to you. Paul notes that this is the first commandment with a promise attached to it. And he quotes Ephesians 6.2. The promise is rooted in the realities of the human soul. A long and healthy existence requires that we be grateful to God for who we are. And we cannot be thankful for who we are without being thankful for our parents through whom our life came. They are a part of our identity. And to reject and be angry with them is to reject and be angry with ourselves. To reject ourselves leads to sickness, dissolution, death, both spiritual and physical. We cannot reject ourselves and love God. You see, it's easy for me to stand here and explain to kids why it's a good idea for them to obey their parents. Bottom line is, if you are a kid, hate to break it to you, your parents are smarter than you. So if they tell you to do something, it's worth listening to, okay? But that's the easy one. That's the easy one. Because what Dallas Willard is trying to point out And what I've become convinced of is that we are all called to process in the Lord learning how to honor our parents. 
And until we go through this process, our ability to grow in the Lord will be stunted. Now, going through this process is obviously going to be easier for those whose parents, specifically their fathers, followed the next directive. Look at verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke or exasperate your children, but instead feed them or nourish them or raise them according to discipline and the good thinking of the Lord. Though this word specifically in verse 4 is addressed to fathers, I would suspect that we can extend the instruction to all parents. And it tells us how to parent well. First, telling us what not to do. Do not paragudze... I'm sorry. Pa, I want to say it right because I want to sound smart. Paragitsete. Thank you. I had to find it first. Paragitsete. Do not paragitsete. Do not provoke to anger or do something intentionally to produce anger as the response. Parents, never should our parenting strategy be to tear down our children. As fun as it might be, verbal abuse and humiliation are not tactics for raising children in the Lord. I'll say it again for the sarcastic ones like myself. Verbal abuse and humiliation are not effective tactics for raising kids in the Lord. Paul tells us instead what to do in the next word. I loved this next word in the Greek, but instead, ektrephate. Though it has the idea of bringing up, it's actually a compound word out of feeding or nourishing our children that we are to bring them up and feed them from our ways. Parenting is not about squashing our children. It is about filling them with what is good. Now, Paul tells us what it is that we're supposed to fill them with, and he gives us two words. First, fill them with paideia, which is the word, the general word for discipline. But that discipline word doesn't mean Punishment, though punishment is sometimes appropriate, when we are nourishing our children with discipline, we are giving them life-giving guidance on right behaviors. Like I said before, kids aren't as smart as their parents, generally speaking. And so it's a good idea for you to give them generally good principles upon which they should build their life. But we do it with the last word that Paul uses giving them the nuthasia, the exhortation, the instruction, or the warning of the Lord. We have to teach them God's story as we have learned it and, our, and are learning it. It is the parents' role, parents, it is our role to understand that we are stewards of humans that are deeply loved by God. They're not your kids. Yeah, they're kind of your kids. And for some of you, you really need them to be your kids. The Spirit will work in your heart on that. But they are deeply loved by God. And God has entrusted you to grow this person so we do not squash. We nourish, we guide, we teach, and we do it with the exhortation of the Lord. So frequently so constantly telling them the story that our kids start using that tone that we've heard before. Yeah, mom, I know that God loves me and he's always with me and that he's working in my life. 
there could be no greater honor than hearing your kids say that to you because you know that you have now told them enough times. And if you hear that, keep telling them it's working. So when we get to verses 5 through 9, you might be tempted to see yourselves as not relating to the instruction. Let me challenge you. Listen to the instruction first. Stay checked in, and then I will tell you why it matters to you. The next verse, 5, starts with a word. We read ESV together when we started it, and it came across as bondservants. Does anyone else's version have a different word there? Slaves. In Greek, the word is doulos. And I understand that there is a steeped history, not just in our country, but globally, of the ugliness that came from the institution of slavery. And I get the privilege of getting to teach this to a predominantly white church, so I don't have to walk as carefully as I might if I was maybe teaching this in the South. But the bottom line is, people, the word that's used there is slaves. It doesn't mean bond servants. It means people who are owned by other human beings. And I'm going to continue to use this word, not out of insensitivity, but, be, but out of honor to the word that's actually used in the text. And also because it will hopefully help you see a bigger picture of what Paul's trying to do, which interestingly is going to turn slavery on its head. You see, one-third of the Roman Empire were slaves. One-third. That means that if we were having church together, right? If we were having church together and you look across the room, like this amount of people right here were owned by someone else, possibly within the church. They were owned. They didn't get to make choices for themselves. They had to live day in and day out as an owned human being. Yet when they came together in God's family, God commingled both slave and owner both slave and master. And he tells the slaves, uses the same verb in verse 5 that he had told the children in verse 1, hupakoete. You might remember that that verse means to listen under or to place under the authority of or to obey. And then Paul is going to go on for three more verses to talk about the nature of how that obedience must look. First, he says in verse 5, I'm sorry, 4, he says in verse 4, obey them in fear and with trembling, that we're to do this seriously, not flippantly. If we are a slave, we are going to put ourselves under our master with all sincerity, not flippantly. Then the next word that he uses there, haplotete, means that this is going to be done with sincerity and genuineness of heart, not duplicitous. We're not obeying or serving if we're responding to this in an effort to undermine or attempting to secretly gain leverage. This doesn't have an ulterior motive to it. We're doing this with sincerity. Verse 6, Paul then uses two words that he made up for the purposes of his letter. He says, not with first eye service. We're not doing this in such a way, slaves, that we are serving just so that we can look 
good to our masters or to the other slaves. We're not doing this that way. We're also not doing it, the next combo word, as man-pleasers. We're not doing this in such a way. We're not obeying our master in such a way just to make our master happy. Why is that? Because you are slaves of Christ, doing the will of God. And then he says, the ESV translates it, from your heart. Do the will of God from your heart. The word there is do it from your soul. Do it from the depths of who you are. Work with the totality of who you are. But then that's not enough. Now, Paul knows the mental game. He's already made reference to it. We're not going to serve as slaves as doing just eye service or being man-pleasers, but he knows that even within that, there is a mental struggle that resentment can grow up within the mind as the slave is trying to obey the master. So he writes, verse 7, with eunoias, which means good or friendly thinking. And this is done because it is, again, for the Lord and not for men. Now, he gives them a little bit of hope by writing verse 8. If you will do this for the Lord and not for men, knowing that each good thing that one does, this he will receive repayment from the Lord, whether slave or free. Now, I've already made reference to you that Paul, through the way that he's writing, is going to start to undermine the nature of slavery itself. He first started by talking to a church room filled with both slaves and masters. Then on top of that, he writes what, he just, what we just read in verse 8, that the rewards which come for serving the Lord and not men are equally distributed amongst slave and free man. That it didn't matter if you were a slave. That didn't give you less than special permission or less than special privilege to get rightly rewarded. And it didn't give you special privilege to be a master that God would equally reward appropriately. Then he writes verse 9, which was at least the moment for me it's not necessarily like this groundbreaking idea, but when you get to teach passages over and over again, you see new things. Somehow I had missed this before. When he turns to the masters after describing what it is that the slaves ought to be for their masters, he turns to the masters and says, masters, the first thing he says, do the same things to them. Let that phrase just sink into your mind for a moment. I want you to remember some of the things that I've said, and I want you to remember this phrase right here, the next conversation that you have where somebody says, I have a hard time accepting scripture because scripture condones slavery. Really? Have you, have you read the book of Ephesians? Where specifically slaves and free are instructed within the same church where slaves and free are told that they will receive equal rewards regardless of their status. And then when masters are given specific instructions, Paul turns to the masters and says, hey, all the stuff I just told the slaves to be, masters, you got to do it too. What? I own that human. You don't get to tell me how it is that I get to treat that person. Huh. Yeah, I do. I do. Because in Christ, 
as he will finish up the end of chapter, I'm sorry, the end of verse 9, Christ has no what? What's it say at the end of verse 9? Favoritism, or what was the other one? Partiality. The same God doesn't care if you are the master or the slave, if you are red, purple, black, or blue, doesn't care how much money you have, doesn't care the status or the way that other people in your society looks at you. He plays no favorites. There's a lady that I know, and I will not say her name because some of you know her too. One of the things that she says that is just so endearing is she always goes, you know what, I'm God's favorite. And I love that about her because I don't know if she really believes it. She might. But what it is that she's really trying to communicate is that she's starting to recognize the love that God has for her heart, regardless of who she is. But do you know what's actually true? You know who God's favorite is? You are. You who are in Christ. You said Jesus, and that was the perfect Sunday school answer, right? It's always Jesus or the Bible, right? But those of us who are in Christ... You are God's favorite. You're all God's favorite. And that's a beautiful thing to look at. When when Paul turns to the masters and he tells them, God plays no favorites, so as a result, no longer can you rule over your slaves with an iron fist. I love how he writes it, the command that he writes. Stop your threats. Have you ever been in charge of somebody and you told them what it is that you're supposed to do and they don't do it and you're like... Right? And you, and you want to threaten them. Right? Don't make me tell you again. Right? Or what, whatever it is that you... I'm sure you don't do that. It just comes out of me sometimes. <laughs> Instead, Paul says, all the things I've just told the slaves, masters, you have to do too. Treat them with sincerity. Don't be duplicitous. Be friendly-minded, knowing that the way that you treat them will determine the way that you will be judged. It is because of things like this that it was actually Christ in his people that did away with the foundation of slavery. Because suddenly we realized that if Christ is treating us all the same, maybe we should too. Took us a while. Yeah. Unacceptable. But that's what laid the foundation for it. Now I told you at the beginning before we went through these groups that we were going to hopefully see a persistent theme through Paul's address to those four groups. And just in case you didn't see it, and for the sake of time, I'm going to go ahead and tell you what it is. Children, listen in the Lord. Fathers, provide instruction of the Lord. Slaves, you are truly serving the Lord. Masters, do the same. You are serving the Lord who plays no favorites. It is crucial for us to understand that there is no human relationship that you have that is merely with one other person. When you interact with any other human being, you are being instructed to interact with that person as you are interacting with the Lord. This is a revolutionary concept. 
When we are left to ourselves, I know that this is difficult because you, like me, have a favorite element of your wardrobe. Now you laugh, and it's because you can't see yours. But I see it. All of us own one of these, and we spend far too much time, probably the majority of our time, wearing it. If you don't believe me, ask yourself, what happens when I don't get my way at work? How dare this person not see things my way? Do they not know? What happens when you are at home and you don't get to do the thing that you had decided that you wanted to do that day? Man, can they not see my crown? And for those of you thinking yourselves to be perfect, just imagine yourself when you're in traffic. When you're driving down the road and so and so does such and such, and within your soul, how dare they block the king from where he shall goeth? Does he not see that this highway is my highway? This is how we think. Because we wear this thing. Think about it. How easily are you angered when you are insulted or demeaned or when someone doesn't see your value? There are entire marketing campaigns based off of slogans. Have it your way. Those of you who are old enough in the room will know exactly who I'm talking about and might remember that when you went to buy a hamburger from this place whose slogan was, have it your way, you would get a hamburger and like the paper hat from In-N-Out, they gave you a crown for you to wear. I was thinking about showing you an old commercial just for nostalgia's sake, but I don't know how to download stuff. But the... A 70s era commercial and this guy buys his hamburger and as he's walking out he turns to his wife and he's like it's nice to finally be able to have it my way (laughs) think about it I mean we all we want to be the boss and I don't mean to meddle too much but some of us in this room couldn't even handle working for someone else so much that you had to become your own boss. And I don't mean to judge you for that. I'm not saying there's something sinful about starting your own business. I'm just saying that, did you do it because of this? Maybe. Maybe you're still doing it because of this. And here's the thing, is that none of us deserve to wear this thing. We all have a boss. Every single relationship that we have with others is actually had with Christ. And he is the one who deserves to wear this. Not me. Not you. Him. And it is crucial that we understand this about our actual nature. Because the group from this text that we actually all fit into, even if we don't want to, is the one that gets the most text in verses 1 through 9. Friends, you and me, we are slaves. We're slaves. 
Paul in Romans chapter 6 teaches that the worst form of being a slave is being a slave to yourself. He goes on to say that being a slave to yourself is being a slave to sin. But here's where we somehow pull a little switcheroo and become too American. When we are freed from the slavery of ourselves, freed from the slavery of sin, this doesn't actually change our status as slave. It changes to whom we are a slave. We are no longer a slave to ourselves, but to Christ. If you don't believe me, maybe you'll remember the verse that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, where Paul uses slave language. Christian, you are not your own. You were bought just like a slave. Paul, James, Peter, Jude, John, every single one of those New Testament authors address themselves in their writing as slave of Christ. So much so that Paul based his slavery in an idea that maybe you'll remember from Philippians chapter 2, that Jesus, who existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be held too tightly, but instead emptied himself, making himself nothing, and took on the nature of a doulos, a slave. You remember what happened in the upper room? Everybody sat down at the table to have this last Passover, not necessarily knowing how big of a deal it was going to be. Anticipation was high, though, because they were in Jerusalem. And everybody's a little bit unsure of what it is that they're supposed to do. And Jesus notices something. The room stinks like nasty feet. You remember this one? Because there wasn't a slave stationed in the upper room. And no one in that room was going to lower himself to do slave work. They had just got done asking, hey, do we get to sit next to the throne with you when you like take over things? No one is going to do the work of a slave. Jesus walks over to the edge of the room. Instead of grabbing a crown, grabs a basin and a towel. And he goes from disciple to disciple, sitting in this room, washing their nasty, stinking feet. When, they, when he gets to Peter, there's this fun interchange. You remember it? Peter's like, no, uh He realizes what's going on, and he's not having any part of it. No, 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 no. You don't get to wash my feet. And Jesus goes, if I don't get to wash your feet, then you have no part in me. And he's like, well, then give me a bath. Let me have the basin. Wash all of me. And Jesus is like, calm down. You don't know what you're talking about yet. <laughs> when he finishes, he says what's recorded in John 13, 15. Jesus says, I gave you an example that you should do as I did. Friends, it is time to take this off of your head. It doesn't belong there. You must pick this up. You and I are slaves. 
But here's the exciting thing. I'm going to invite the musicians to get back up and get situated. Here's the exciting thing about this slavery. As you struggle to come to terms with this, I want you to realize to whom you are a slave. You are a slave to a foot-washing master who says, just, just do what I do. You are owned by one who knows you more intimately than you know yourself. Your Lord wants to guide you better than the world's greatest father ever could. Your master is your lover who loves you more deeply than the best of spouses ever could. If you have given yourself to Christ, then he is now your great master. And I can tell you based upon my own experience that there is no one to whom I would rather be a slave than him, including myself. And so, fellow slave, in the power of the Spirit this week, leave your crown on the ground. Pick up your basin and your towel and give yourself more wholly to your master. And you know what you'll get in trade? A slave will get true freedom. Jesus, I praise you that you were willing to go to depths that not even our prideful little hearts are willing to go to. Forgive us. Renew us again in your love for your people. That we can praise you with our willingness to deny ourselves and take up our cross with you and follow you this week. And we will give you the glory for it. Because you wear the crown. You are the king. And we worship you. Amen.